So, you think you know about African decolonization, but have you ever heard the story of the French mercenary who tried to overthrow the Comoros four times? Or how about the time where Congolese rebels held a thousand Europeans hostage, hoping to negotiate a second independence? I'm Sarah. And I'm Lynn. And welcome to Bara Freak, the podcast where we tell the unexplored stories of African independence over a drink. Or five. We'll be dropping episodes weekly, so listen wherever you get your podcasts. See you then. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we immersed ourselves into the chaotic and violent period of extended civil war, which ravaged 18th century Imerina. While the kings of Ambohimanga, the northern and easternmost of the remaining Merina rump states, made some promising efforts to reunite the state through military conquest and an alliance with the Sakalava to their west, these efforts proved unsuccessful in the end, and Imerina remained divided among numerous petty kingdoms, each under a de facto tributary status with their Sakalava neighbors. Famine became rampant, while destructive industries like slave raiding and cattle burglary ascended in this era of collapse. How could Merina civilization possibly recover from a period of such havoc? Today we will answer that question as we enter into a new era of Merina history, with the rise of the man widely considered to be the best monarch to have ever ruled the region. Today we begin the story of Andrianam Poeni Merina. Season 3, Episode 13. Andrianam Poeni Merina's Rule, Part 1. The True Prince. In the waning days of the year 1769, the Prince of Ambohimanga, Rakotomafu, gathered together his male descendants with him in the royal palace. The prince had recently developed a deathly illness, and decided that it was time to pick a successor. The attendees of the event included not only the king's sons, but also his grandchildren and nephews, who were considered viable heirs. As has become a trope in Merina folk history, the king decided to test the acumen of each of his prospective heirs, and so Rakotomafu laid out a piece of silk cloth. On top of this cloth laid a menagerie of various treasures, ranging from silver coins, gilded jewelry, gems, and other extravagant pieces, while four buckets of dirt weighed down the cloth's corners. Rakotomafu brought in the heirs one by one, and as they glanced at the objects, he told them to pick out the object which they felt was the most valuable. This was a difficult game of prices right. Some heirs picked the silver, others the jewelry, and others the gemstones. And each time they did so, Rakotomafu dismissed them. Finally, one of Rakotomafu's grandsons entered the palace. The young man was in his early 20s, tall and had a notably light complexion. He went by the name Rambusalmazaka. The fact that Rambusalmazaka was considered a viable heir at all is honestly a pretty telling indication of the time's unusual political circumstances. According to the laws of organized succession, a prince could only be considered a viable heir to the throne if he was descended from both the lines of the current Mpanjaka Imerina, as well as the Mpanjaka Imerina's fraternal cousin, since this would allow the younger brother of the king to have future descendants of royal lineage. However, the only tradition deeper and more respected than organized succession was the practice of editing the rules of organized succession. Countless Mpanjaka Imerina had risen to the throne in the past, despite, in theory, not fitting with the precedent of organized succession as it existed at the time of their ascent, including, crucially, Rakutomafu himself. If you remember last episode, Rakutomafu was, in fact, adopted. 
he was in actuality the king's nephew, the son of one of his sisters, who was adopted as the king's legal son and heir. As a result, Rekotomafu was the first Marina king since, what, Andrea Maniello? to not descend from both the line of the king himself and of Andrea Manello's brother, Andrea Manitani. Now, Rambo Salamarsaka was very much not adopted, but was instead the biological grandson of the king. His mother was, of course, the king's biological daughter, but it was his father which made his relationship to the king a bit unusual. The father of Rambo Salamarsaka was not only a member of the royal family, but he was not even Merina. Rather, Rambo Salamarsaka's father was the prince of an independent Hofa kingdom to the north of Amboimanga. The people who lived in this kingdom were called the Safimamie, and they were a highland people who had a long-standing relationship with the kingdom of Imerina. The Safimamie had been one of the many neighboring kingdoms which had submitted to Imerina during the rule of Andrea Massina Falona, but had since, as you might expect, abandoned the subjugated status once Imerina collapsed into multiple warring states. By this point, the Safimami kingdom was pretty firmly independent of Merina rule, and had even militarily clashed with the armies of Ambohimanga with some frequency during raids for slaves and cattle. Rokoto Mafodo had seen the conflict between himself and his northern neighbor as counterproductive, and sought peace instead. So the prince of Ambohimanga decided to arrange an alliance offer, in which his daughter would marry the heir of the Safimami king. This marriage, and by proxy the agreement of alliance that it would seal, was accepted, with the product of the marriage being, well, Rambo Salamarcaza. So, as the 24-year-old grandson approached the objects laid before him, he pondered for a moment, before he decided to make an unorthodox choice. He skipped over all of the glittering objects of treasure, and instead picked up one of the pots of dirt. He rationalized this choice by explaining that the most valuable object on the map was, of course, ownership of the land itself. With his grandson's wise decision noted, Rakuto Mafo knew that, of all the prospective heirs, only his half-Zafimamie grandson had the judgment necessary to run the kingdom, and instated him as the new heir of Amboimanga. The story of Rambo Salmarakaska and the Bucket of Dirt, though often reported as a historical event, is most likely an anachronistic fable. After all, Merina kings devising a convoluted riddle to measure the merit of their future heirs is a pretty well-worn trope of Highland Malgasy mythology, and in this case, it has a pretty straightforward lesson to impart on the listener. That is, that the means of production, in this case the land, is infinitely more valuable than the short-term value of Veblen luxury goods. So-called wealth is fleeting, and only productivity can maintain it. It's worth noting that the more mainstream theory among historians is that, since his birth, the young prince had always been the prospective heir because of his non-Marina heritage. Jeremy Rich argues pretty convincingly that the marriage alliance between Ambohimanga and the Safimami hinged on the notion that the child born from the marriage would inherit both of the kingdoms. And therefore, Rambo Salamarkazaka was destined to inherit the kingdom from the moment he was born and that the story of him picking the dirt over shiny objects is simply an anachronistic propaganda piece praising the king's wisdom even at a young age. Due to his noble heritage, Rambo Salamarkazaka grew up in a life of privilege. He was born and raised in Ikaloi, the capital of his father's Safimamie kingdom, emerging into the world on the first day of the Malagasy New Year, at least according to legends. There, he was provided with the finest education one could receive in Imerina 
with a small army of private tutors providing the prince a top-notch education, mostly focused on rhetoric and oratory. Such an education would pay off considerably later in his life. With his skills in persuasion and speech delivery developed during these classes, marking Rambo Salmarkazaka with an unrivaled degree of political charisma throughout his career. The first major change to Rambo Salmarkazaka's life occurred when he made a move to live with his mother in Ambohimanga, where he made his first early forays into government work. As a teenager, Rambo Salmarkazaka received his first job, a very important one, working as an official government merchant. Now, it's important to note that, while today the term merchant evokes the idea of a private citizen acting as an independent entrepreneur, this was not the case for Rambo Salmarkazaka. Rather, in the setting of Imerina, the position of merchant was, at this time, an official state enterprise. His job, selling and acquiring goods, was seen literally as a sacred acquisition, something that could only be trusted to high-level bureaucrats. In the Merina zeitgeist, the right to conduct trade was akin to the right to own land, a blessing bestowed upon the people by their ancestors. As part of this role, the young prince traveled numerous trade routes in inland Madagascar, mostly between Ambohimanga and the eastern port city of Tuamasina, carrying cargo of beef, rice, cloth, silk, ironworks, and enslaved people, and returning with goods like rum, finished goods, firearms, gunpowder, and, well, more enslaved people. Yes, you heard that correctly. It was not uncommon for Merina merchants like Rambo Salmarkazaka to both import and export enslaved people back and forth from their kingdom. The collapse of the Fanampuana Corvée labor system in the aftermath of the fragmentation of Imerina caused Merina rulers to search for alternative sources of labor for use in everyday economic life, as well as on larger infrastructural projects. Enslaved labor was used to fill this void. Anyways, Rambo Salmarkazaka performed his role as merchant quite successfully, at least according to later accounts. He would also develop during this time a few traits which would contribute to defining his ruling ideology in the future. These were, namely, a deep-rooted understanding of the potential economic power of exchange, as well as a deep-seated suspicion of the economic motives of foreigners. But the prince's life would radically change in the year 1770. At the age of 25 years, Rambo Salmarkazaka was alerted of tragic news. His father had passed away. As a result of the untimely death, Rambo Salmarkazaka was the new king of Safimamie. As if the newly crowned king didn't have enough on his plate already, fate decided to drop another enormous burden onto the young man. Only a few days after the death of his father, Rambo Salmarkazaka's grandfather, the king of Amboimanga, Rokutomafu, passed away. With the king's dying breaths, he allegedly made his final wishes known. Rambo Salmarkazaka would inherit the kingdom one day. But in the meantime... The prince's uncle, a man named Andrian Jaffie, would rule. Why the dying king made this decision is, well, unclear to say the least, and serves as a genuine challenge to the traditional narratives of Merina history. The traditional narrative surrounding the succession of Rakotomafu states that, for a while before his ultimate fate, the king had already long since decided that Rambo Salmarkazaka was the best fit to succeed him. So then, why add the weight? I mean, Rambo Salmarkazaka was kinda young, in his 20s, but that wasn't really that young when you consider the average lifespan in this era and setting. Maybe he feared that elevating a king of partial foreign descent to the throne of Ambohimanga would cause unrest among the nobility. Or perhaps the sudden death of Rambo Salmarkazaka's father 
forced the king to reconsider, worrying that the young prince could be overwhelmed by the responsibilities entailed of inheriting two kingdoms at once. Possibly, he was worried that skipping a generation and inheritance entirely was too radical of a deviation from the rules of organized succession, and could itself cause unrest among his other sons who had been passed over. Or, most controversially, it was possible that Rambos al Marcazica was never meant to be his heir at all. Several historians have highlighted the fact that, well, every source of oral and written traditions about the elevation of Rambos al Marcazica, as well as those which are all about Imerina before his rulership, were composed long after he had succeeded to the kingship. They are, without exception, unabashedly full of praise for the man. This notable trend in sources on Rambos al Marcazica and his rise to power has led some historians to question their validity as a true reflection of historical reality. It's even pretty likely that many of the early chapters of the Tantara, the source from which many of the narratives shared in the previous episodes of the show, are, in fact, distorted narratives shaped to retroactively act as a prologue for Rambos al Marcazica's reign. So, we are left with the question of how much of Marina history is a reflection of reality, and how much is mere propaganda spread by Rambos al Marcazca and his allies. Which brings us to another problem, in that even historians skeptical of the tradition's validity still have to reluctantly and critically accept them as the official historical record, largely because, well, there's nothing else there. The perspective of Rambos al Marcazica's rivals are entirely missing from this historical record. While stories which supposedly predate his reign were often recorded by court historians long after his rule had already begun, and therefore potentially already tainted with Rambos al Marcazica's ruling propaganda. As a result, we have nothing really to compare these accounts to and critically analyze. And as we'll see, it's important to question these narratives because, well, the relationship between Rambos al Marcazica and his uncle, the new king of Amboimanga, would be anything but smooth. Apparently, things went okay enough at first. As the ruler of Safimamie, Rambos al Marcazica dedicated most of his efforts to warding off raids from the Sakalav. He was also noted for his friendly and engaging personality, with the Safimamie king regularly conversing with ordinary Hofa subjects and, despite his high class upbringing, coming across as remarkably down-to-earth. Those who met the king noted his charismatic personality and impressive speech delivery. Apparently, all those oratory classes he took as a child paid off. Rambos al Marcazica also continued to increase his fame through his victories against the Sakalal. In fact, according to one tradition, retold by Merina traditional historian Sitraka Razorindra Hanarie, the king of Zafimamie was so successful in repelling Sakalava raids that eventually he was even able to turn the tide of the war and go on the offensive. Little survives about the result or details of these campaigns, with the exception of one kind of funny anecdote. The king and his army were apparently marching north to face the Sakalava of Boigny, but one day the army began to run short of water. To help his weary men rehydrate, Rambos al Marcazica ordered a series of scouts to fan out and look for a spring. After a few hours passed, the scouts came back dismayed, having found nothing. So the increasingly wary army continued to move forward, thirsty as all get out. But after just a few minutes of marching, they almost immediately encountered a large river, which led to Rambos al Marcazica getting, well, pretty annoyed. He reprimanded his scouts for searching for hours for a source of water and somehow not finding the one right next to them. 
The scouts defended themselves by saying that, well, we're all from the highlands. We're used to drinking water from fresh springs, and this is a river. Some of the other soldiers agreed and were reluctant to drink from the river, which they saw as, well, gross. Dismayed by his men's lack of toughness, Rambos Almar bent over and took an enormous swig of water straight from the river, declaring, Samye rano y meaning essentially, both are made of water, or as I like to imagine it, water is water. This line became so iconic that it kind of became a personal slogan of Rambos Almar while the historical memory of the event would eventually give its name to the river itself, known as the Sambirano, after Rambos Almar inspirational words. Whether that same army found success in battle later that day, though, is not known. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. While Rambos Almarcazaca's fame was growing from his battles against the feared Sakalav, his uncle, Andrian Jaffe, similarly began trying to cement his own reputation for greatness, but with different results. When it came to ruling Amboimanga, Andrian Jaffe had a difficult task ahead of him. I remember that Imerina at this point was still in the midst of a brutal state of civil war. Well, that same period of intermittent civil war had been going on for more than 60 years now when Andrian Jaffe inherited Amboimanga. By the 1770s, in fact, the civil war had only gotten more brutal and convoluted. On the one hand, there were the three remaining official rump states, each politically stemming from the fiefs given to Andrea Massina Falona's sons, Alasora, Antanarifu, and, of course, Amboimanga. Each rump king saw himself as the rightful successor to Andrea Massina Falona's empire, and aspired to one day reunify his kingdom. But to further add to the confusion, six decades of civil war had seriously weakened the authority that even these rump states commanded in their extended territories. Rulers who had once pledged vassalage to Andrea Massina Falona or one of his sons had often broken away. Local demes, once subservient to royal authority, had since turned away from the crumbling royal order, and instead chose to trust themselves in ensuring their own safety. For this reason, Imerina had now long since been divided not only among three major rump states, but also among dozens of other smaller independent kingdoms and self-governing village states. Anyways, Andrian Jaffe's strategy in this ongoing crisis was to secure an alliance with his most powerful rival, the king of Antananarifu. The king of Antananarifu was a man named Boatsimarufie, and he had a reputation for being one of the most unstable and unpredictable warlords in Imerina. Boatsi Marofie was not only a chronic alcoholic, but also addicted to a novel substance that was just now beginning to show up in Malgasy ports, opium. Merchants had recently started importing the highly addictive substance from India, dealing it in ports all over the world, including in Madagascar. Despite his prospective ally possessing these character flaws, Andrean Jaffe still believed that such an alliance between the two kingdoms would be a productive and lengthy partnership. Perhaps surprisingly, Boatsi Morafie agreed, and an alliance was sealed between the two with a diplomatic marriage between Boatsi Marofie and one of Andrian Jaffe's daughters. But within under a year, 
Andre Anjafie's hopes for a lasting and productive alliance were almost immediately dashed, and he had nobody to blame but himself. In 1777, just a year after the marriage took place, the king of Ambohimanga decided to make a strange decision and betray his new ally in Antanarifu. Andre Anjafie invaded a nearby village called Marufatan, ruled by one of Boatimerofie's vassals. Whether Andre Anjafie was simply unaware of this diplomatic relationship, or if his attack was a poorly thought out attempt at 5D diplomatic chess, uh, take your pick. Either way, full-scale war broke out between Antananarifu and Ambohimanga. Again, this all happened barely a year after the securing of a marriage alliance. The war, on the other hand, lasted for three years. It was a bloody and mostly unproductive slugfest. Although André Anjafier, I guess, mostly got the better out of his southern rival, and managed to annex a few key hills around the two's frontier. The conflict between the two was put to an end when, one night in 1782, angered by the loss of one of his strategic hills, Boatsimirofie murdered one of his wives in a drug-fueled rage. Now, this wasn't André Anjafier's daughter who was on the receiving end of this murder, but the message was clear. Continuing the war any further would put his daughter's life in danger. One possible reason why André Anjafier might have turned against his ally Antanarifu so quickly was not from his desire to conquer territory itself, but rather for the sake of one of the byproducts of war, prisoners. You see, from a very early point in his rule, André Anjafie had struggled to meet the tribute demands that had been imposed upon his kingdom decades earlier by the Sakalav kingdom of Boigny. In addition to beef, leather, and silk, one of the most valuable trade goods which the people of Ambohimanga gave up to the Sakalavo to discourage raiding was enslaved people. The Merina were also far from the only group of people from whom the Sakalav were demanding tribute. In the same era, Sakalav domination extended far beyond Imerina, and even, in some cases, beyond Madagascar. In the late 18th century, Sakalav raiders became the quote-unquote Vikings of the Indian Ocean, traveling by ship to raid destinations as far afield as East Africa and the Comoros Islands. If you want to learn more about the rise of Sakalav maritime raiding and its effects on the history of Comoros, then you can listen to our new premium episode all about the topic by supporting the show at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Not only do you get access to all sorts of premium content and perks, like behind-the-scenes episodes and the ability to vote on topics of new seasons, but you also support our project of free online African history education. And of course, to those already supporting the show, a heartfelt thank you. While Ambohimanga had, in previous years, been able to just barely make these tribute payments, Starting in 1777, just before the breakout of war, Ambohimanga's Sakalaf overlords began demanding even harsher tribute payments, payments of enslaved people which André Anjafie struggled to meet. His new alliance with Antanarifu meant that he could no longer order his armies to raid their settlements or settlements under their protection. So, given the timing, it seems distinctly possible that André Anjafie's decision to betray his newfound ally was motivated by a desperate need to fulfill tribute obligations. After all, war with Antanarifu was less risky than antagonizing his Sakalav overlords. Prisoners captured from Antanarifu and their allies satisfied Sakalav tribute needs for a while. But as the war came to a halt from Andrei Anjafi's fear of his daughter's safety, so too did his main source of POWs. Sakalav tribute collectors, impatient to receive their haul, began breathing down Andrei Anjafi's neck. One Sakalava nobleman residing permanently in Ambohimanga, who is unnamed in the Tantara, began to make threats that if tribute payment wasn't made soon, 
then it would be open season in Anbohimanga. Completely cornered and with no other options, Andrian Jaffia tried to use the last controversial method of enslavement at his disposal, criminal punishment. Starting in 1782, the king initiated a totalitarian reign of terror, manufacturing fallacious criminal charges against his own subjects and sending them as enslaved tribute to the Sakalav. Even then, this method proved insufficient to meet tribute demands, and Sakalava raiders began attacking settlements near Amboimanga, making up the difference in tribute payments themselves, while Andrian Jaffia's government was forced to helplessly watch. As you might imagine, this arrangement was not at all too popular among the ordinary people of Amboimanga. While their homes were being ransacked and their loved ones sold into slavery by Sakalava raiders, their government, rather than helping them, was simply waiting for an opportunity to trump up some criminal charges and sell them into slavery. As you might expect, many of these people were desperate for something, anything, to change. Some of the people of Ambohimanga, especially those personally affected by his policies of enslavement through the law and tolerance of Sakalava raiding, began to entertain an idea. Rumor had it that that guy up north, Rambosal Marcazka, seems like he's pretty good at fighting off the Sakalav. I mean, if he's set to inherit our kingdom eventually anyways, wouldn't it be nice if someone, you know, sped up the process? These attitudes of discontent and the popular favor of Rambosal Marcazaka's rule were not obscure or hidden from Andrian Jaffier. In fact, Andrian Jaffier began to speculate that his nephew might be the one egging on the coalescing and growing flames of rebellion. As a result, the king of Ambohimanga initiated a new project to assassinate his nephew, and instead offer his own son as an alternative heir to the kingdom. According to the Tantara, Andrian Jaffier invited Rambosal Marcazka to stay in Ambohimanga for a while, and then proceeded to hire several hitmen and instructed them to assassinate Rambosal Marcazka while he slept. The plan likely would have succeeded if not for the intervention of another one of Rambosal Marcazka's uncles. Not wanting to see his nephew killed by his tyrannical brother, this other uncle warned Rambosal Marcazka of the upcoming attempt on his life. With this advanced knowledge, Rambosal Marcazaka now knew to avoid his uncle's invitations and fled back north. With his assassination attempt thwarted, Andrian Jaffier was no longer secure in his power, and his nephew was now fully aware of the king's murderous intentions. However, as if things couldn't get any worse, a new army suddenly appeared on Ambohimanga's southern frontier. It was not the armies of Antanarifu. No, they were busy fighting another pointless fratricidal conflict against Alasora. It was an army of buzzing insects. A cloud of locusts, numbering in the millions, swarmed over the rice crops of Ambohimanga. With the old hydraulic infrastructure of the past no longer functioning, the people of Imerina had long since been forced to revert to the old practice of dry rice farming. With their rice crops exposed to the sky, the locusts feasted, with the Hofa farmers only able to feebly swat at the enormous cloud of bugs. As the swarm passed over the mountains of Ambohimanga, they left nothing in their wake. The entirety of Imerina, already decimated by decades of intermittent war, raiding, and a moderate famine, now had to contend with the worst famine it had seen in its history. Fair or not, many important figures in Ambohimanga placed the blame for this unending catastrophe at the feet of their king. A conspiracy was born as twelve important noblemen and palace bureaucrats joined forces and vowed to end Andrian Jaffier's tyrannical rule. As had been the case in previous rebellions, the leader was the head Sikidje reader, or maker of days, a man named Ratondro. 
Ratondro, combined with his other conspirators, arranged for a trap. After making contact with Rambo Salmarcazca, they agreed that he would return to Amboimanga. As word got out that the prince was crossing the frontier, Andrea and Jaffia immediately received news of his arrival and sent out his assassins. Rambo Salmarcazca, having sacrificed a goat as a protective measure ahead of time, patiently waited for them to arrive. When the assassins eventually found the Safimamiya prince, he was surrounded by more than two dozen armed guards plucked from the subjects of his supporting nobles. The guards quickly dispatched the outnumbered assassins, and, with Rambo Salmarcazca at their helm, marched on Amboimanga. Isolated and now without his finest soldiers, Andrea Jaffier immediately abandoned his palace and fled south. Refusing to give up his seat of power, the old king held up in the southernmost point of his authority, the town of Ilafie. This area was one Andrea Jaffier knew well. He had acted as the governing Andreana of the region when his father was still king. Andrea Jaffe knew that if anyone was still loyal to him, it was the nobles of Ilafie. His deep roots in the town did pay off, and he was able to raise a relevant army to try and retake his throne. But Rambo Salmarcazaca and his supporters had an army of their own. In 1787, the two sides met on the battlefield, with Rambo Salmarcazaca emerging the victor. Andrea Jaffe, now without an army and with no base of local support, continued to hold on to his claim and fled south to Antanarifu, where he was begrudgingly harbored by his former ally turned enemy, Boatzi Marofie. The now-deposed king pled to the ruler of Antanarifu to help him raise an army and overthrow his treacherous nephew, but Boatzi Marofie was not interested. The armies of Antanarifu were already spent from the long campaign against Alasora, and his kingdom was in tatters from the fallout of the Locust Plague. Disappointed by this response, Andrea Jaffier moved on to Alasora, where he made the same proposal and received the same response. This was the beginning of, essentially, an extended tour of rejection, with the once king of Ambohimanga traveling now to small villages hoping that someone, anyone, would support his reconquest. And a few men did join his banner, allowing Andrea Jaffier to lead a protracted guerrilla campaign against his nephew. However, one day the deposed king decided to travel to his former base at Lafie, probably in an effort to recruit any remaining supporters he could find. While trying to sneak into the town, Andrea Jaffier was spotted by a group of Rambos Almarcasca supporters and murdered, marking the end of this brief southern insurgency. With his uncle now on the ground, Rambos Almarcasca turned to a new goal, the dream shared by his grandfather and other kings of Amboimanga, the reunification of Imerina. Fortunately for Rambos Almarcazaca, his potential rivals in the south were in too sorry of a state to resist him. After years of war between itself and its neighbors, there's a reason why Antanarifu refused to lend troops to Andrea Jaffier. It was in no state to fight. The armies of Amboimanga marched to Antanarifu and began to besiege the Rofa in 1792, and it fell the same year. With Rambos Almarcazaca now the undisputed master of Imerina, Rulers throughout the country, including the kings of Alasora and Ambohidra Trimo, decided that their own ambitions were finally outmatched. In an effort to cut their losses and still maintain some local power, they negotiated treaties with their new liege and submitted as vassals. It hadn't been easy, but after more than eight decades of civil war, chaos, oppression, and suffering, the people of Imerina were again united under one kingdom. Like any proper Mpanjaka Merina, the first new king of a reunited Merina decided that his current name simply did not properly capture his achievements. 
Instead, he adopted a new name, one which would follow him beyond his lifetime and serve as the name that Madagascar will never forget. He chose the prince in the hearts of the people of Imerina, Andrianam Poini Merina. And from now on, sticking with the historical record, that is what he shall be known as. Rambosal Marcasca is no more. Long live Andrianam Poini Merina. To be honest, this short rule alone would already be a substantial achievement. Transforming his home country from a collection of warring factions stuck in an 80-year cycle of pointless violence back into a unified state is an achievement all on its own. If his rule ended here, Andrian Ampoini Merina would already be on the shortlist of best Merina sovereigns. But it certainly doesn't end here. With the dreams of his forefathers realized, Andrian Ampoini Merina had to create a dream of his own. And that he certainly did. Join us in our next episode, as the dust settles with the end of the Merina Civil War, and Andrea Nampoini Merina begins the tall task of bringing his once tattered kingdom back into a state of prosperity. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyuno Lrontimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rasan Firgiani, and Ni T, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.